0: Good morning, Saints. So, uh, once upon a time, there was this pair of twins that were in their mother's womb, and they decided to have a conversation with one another. And the first baby looked at the other baby and said, Do you believe in life after delivery? And the other baby replied, Of course, there's life after delivery. In fact, I believe it's going to be a place with light, and we'll be able to walk with these legs, play with these arms, eat with these mouths. In fact, we're probably going to have so many other senses that we can't even comprehend what it's going to be like right now. And the first baby responded and said, you know how crazy that sounds? Walking is impossible, and plus, what's the point? We're going to walk on water here? And then, plus, why would we use our mouths to eat? We have this umbilical cord that provides all the nutrients that we could possibly ever need. And if you think about it, if there really is life after delivery, then how come we don't have proof about it? Why hasn't someone who's experienced that life come back in to show us that it's possible? I know. So uh, the second baby replied, said, I don't know. Those are really good questions. What you say makes sense, but I can't help but believe i can't help but think that there's more to life than what's here in the womb and we might not understand it right now but i trust that someday when we meet mother after delivery she'll take care of us and she'll explain everything to us oh my goodness you're so naive you actually believe in mother (laughs) if she really exists then where is she if she loves us so much then why is she hiding from us There's no reason whatsoever to believe that she exists. The second baby replied and said, I know, you're right. I can't prove mother exists. At the same time, I know that she does. And I know that there are times when I focus and when I'm quiet, I can hear her voice. I can hear her speaking to me. I can hear her calling my name. I don't know about you, but I choose to believe. Welcome, Awakenites, to our church. We're in the midst of a series that we've entitled Creed. And in this series, Creed is defined uh, by definition, it's a formalized confession of faith. And so, as we shared in previous weeks, creeds are how the early church defined their beliefs, defined what was true. Especially in the midst of all these false teachers that were saying different things about who Jesus was and who God was, and they define they define their beliefs by their creed and they define what was true, and that's kind of what has been at the heart of our series as well. To be able to take a time through the course of this series to address the things that we believe that God has given us to be true, and I shared the first week that some of that is just common concerns, just in conversations, I'm like, man, I'd love to take the time to make sure, because I just feel like sometimes we can just kind of go off, and there are these different ideas that the world throws at us that can be so easy to embrace, and as a church in America, it's become all the more important for us to define our beliefs rather than allowing the world to define what it is we believe or what it is that we should believe, because if we listen to the world, then we're going to end up a lot like that first baby in the womb, a bit cynical skeptical, and not trusting anything that we can't see, hear, feel, or touch. But we choose a better reality. We choose to be people of faith, and not just blind faith, but faith in a God who has proven himself and has chosen us to be recipients of his love. And so three weeks ago, we began with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And that's the starting point of our faith, that we believe An almighty God who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, who is everywhere and always good. Who is the maker of heaven and earth and everything that we can see, hear, touch, and experience. And maybe above all of that, that almighty God has claimed us as his children. That's amazing. Praise the Lord. And in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So our relationship with God is broken by the fall and through our continued sin. And so Jesus Christ came as both fully God and also fully man. He has come to redeem us. He was and remains the only one who can. And that was the assertion of the early church and remains what we believe about Jesus today suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. The story of Jesus is not a myth. It is not a legend. It's not an allegory. It's one grounded in factual history. And this idea is what distinguishes Christianity from all of these other religions out there, that Christianity, the Christian faith, is not necessarily built as much upon a set of beliefs as it is upon a person, Jesus Christ, and a specific act in history, his death, burial, and resurrection. The early church fathers recognized that as being true, and it's the reason why they included the name of this unimportant governor of a Roman province named Pontius Pilate that would otherwise have been forgotten in history, but because of his role in sentencing Jesus to die, has a place in history, and that which as we shared last week, made the discovery, the pilot Stone in 1961, and the historical confirmations all the more meaningful. And this week, we're diving into week four of our series on Creed with these words, he descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Before we dive into things, this is, a this is an Awaken Q&A series as a reminder. So that means is I'm teaching, if there are any questions, comments, or thoughts that you might have, feel free to text them to awakenq and at gmail.com. And we'll tackle as many of those as we can before we wrap up our time. And secondly, to help the Apostles' Creed sink more into our minds, we're going to recite what we've gone through thus far together. It's all together, I believe. So I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. All right, I'll go first. Let's do it that way. Let's start again, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. And he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. dead. So what does it mean that he descended into hell? Isn't hell that place where the lake of fire exists, where Satan and his demons are going to be thrown into? Why would Jesus go there after the cross? Did Jesus really need to suffer anymore? And didn't his final words, right, it is finished, mean that all of his suffering was done, that his suffering had ended? How does the idea of he descended into hell make any sense? So let's begin again with defining death. And as we shared last week, oftentimes when we think of death, we think of this annihilation that we're completely annihilated. But that's not necessarily true, right, because even with death, it doesn't mean that our existence has been wiped from the map. We have people who remember us, and, and there's still a body. And so there's, that's not necessarily the idea that's encompassed when we think about death. Death instead, at its core, fundamentally is about separation. Separation of spirit from God, separation of soul from body. And so when we talk about that, I want to take some time to flesh out these two ideas. Separation of spirit from God is the idea that Paul teaches in the book of Ephesians, when he shares in Ephesians 2, 1, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. That is spiritual death. That is how we all begin, right? Living in disobedience, living in sin. This is how all of us look before Christ, spiritually dead and separated from God. But this is only the first aspect of death. The other kind is the kind that we're much more familiar with, the separation of soul, from body that's the death where the body stops living the mind the brain stops working the heart stops beating the blood stops flowing type of death the body no longer lives but the soul does and they're separated at that moment and so we want to talk about what this means for for jesus jesus was conceived by the holy spirit born of the virgin mary that means jesus is the only (coughs) was the only person since adam and eve who was born alive, without sin. And so on the cross, when Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, Jesus experienced on the cross both forms of death, spiritual death and also that physical death where body is separated from soul. So yes, Jesus died in the same way that we understand and imagine it will someday go through death. But what happened after he died? is what's going to be different. In the book of Acts, Luke shares this interesting passage starting in verse 29. Brothers, I must I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So this is how we die. Paul or, I'm sorry, Luke is referencing that David died just like us. That he died, he was buried and his body is still in the tomb. And then he continues, right? Because evidently this happens to everyone except For Jesus. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses. Jesus was not abandoned to Hades. And that is, even though his soul went to Hades, it was not trapped there. And then neither did his flesh, his physical body, see corruption. Jesus died, but that death was temporary. And so hopefully you're still with me because that's a bit of what we covered last week. Here is a question that we're going to tackle today. So if that is true, and we believe that to be true, that Jesus did actually die, spiritually, physically, soul split from by the whole nine yards, what happened while he was dead? What happened in those three days between his death, burial, and then resurrection? Jesus descended into hell. That's what the Apostles' Creed says. So uh, hell is a funny word. Uh, not funny like, ha, 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 funny, you know, because we don't joke in church about H-E, double hoggy sticks. Um, But funny in the sense that it's almost like this this umbrella word that covers a bunch of other ideas when we think about what the afterlife looks like and what happens after you die. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the word that kind of represents that idea of what happens and where you go in the afterlife is sheol. It's used 65 times in the Old Testament to refer to where you go after you die. But it's only translated into hell 31 of those times, so a bit less than half. Hades, in the New Testament, is the word that's translated as hell numerous times, but not every time. And then there's the words Tartarus, once used to describe hell, and then Gehenna, which is also used, translated in the New Testament as, that's right, hell. So when you use this word hell, it can sometimes be a bit confusing, because it tends to represent a lot of different ideas, especially if we're going to spend some time talking about the afterlife. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to use the big umbrella word, I'm going to use the more specific words underneath as we talk about uh, Jesus and what happened in that time between his death, burial, and resurrection in an attempt to make what happened during those three days a bit more clear, hopefully. And before we dive in, I want to just clarify one more thing, right? This is going to be my best shot at uh, helping bring clarity to something that really isn't perfectly clear in the scriptures. So I want to say that. So as we go through this, I want you to understand that even though the exact details of what might have happened in those three days might end up being a bit unclear, the result is not. And that's what we're going to circle back around to at the end. So with that, let's start with the Old Testament and the Hebrew word sheol. In the Old Testament, uh, this word is used For where the souls of the dead went to, right? It's a place called Sheol, and Sheol is described in a number of different ways. First, it's described as a place where souls do not praise God. In Psalm chapter 6, verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Sheol is a physical place, someplace beneath the earth. In Numbers 16, It says, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. It's also described as being a shadowy place where the souls of men dwell. And Isaiah 14, the place of the dead, Sheol, is excited to meet you when you come. That's kind of a weird thought. It wakes the spirits of the dead, the leaders of the world. It makes kings of all nations stand up from their thrones to greet you. And maybe more surprisingly, Sheol is the word used to describe that place where both the righteous and the unrighteous go. In Psalm 31, 17, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. The cry of the psalmist is this is how the wicked should go to Sheol silently, right? Genesis 42, this is Jacob, uh, who's later named Israel, right? But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should come to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So as you can see in the Old Testament, both the prophets and the authors are clear, under the inspiration of God, that the place where they would go was a real and specific place called Sheol for both the wicked and the righteous to dwell. And then as we move into the New Testament, there is this new word to communicate a similar idea, the idea that this is the place where souls go to dwell after the bodies die, and that word is Hades. In the New Testament, the word that comes closest to the idea of Sheol is the Greek word Hades. Hades has a similar meaning, and it's given an extended description in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 16, that we're going to take some time to look at. In a story, I didn't want to run through the entire story. Hopefully, it's pretty familiar with, uh, to most of you, but it's a story of where Lazarus was this poor man who uh, sat, stayed outside the gates of this rich man And begged for food and whatever. And so the rich man came out often. It doesn't ever say whether he gave him food or not. But it does seem clear that the rich man did not treat Lazarus kindly. And so when they both died, the rich man went to this place of torment in Hades. And Lazarus went to, so the the rich man went to the bad place in Hades. And Lazarus went to the good place in Hades. And bad place Hades was a place of torment, of suffering, of fire, while the good place was called Abraham's bosom and a place of peace, comfort, and rest. And between the two, there's this great chasm that cannot be crossed. And so, if we have this idea and we put together the ideas of Sheol and Hades, then what we're coming up with is that there is a place where prior to Christ, Souls went after they were separated from the body. There is a good place for the righteous in Hades, and there is a bad place for the unrighteous in Hades. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, and Jesus changes the very nature of death. It actually begins with a passage while Jesus was still alive on the cross. He was surrounded by two thieves, if you remember the story, and one of the thieves insulted Jesus, mocked Jesus, and the other thief decided to stand up for Jesus. And then this passage, this interaction happens in Luke 23. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a fascinating response, isn't it? It doesn't say Jesus told him, today you'll be with God in heaven. That's not what he said. He said, today you'll be with me in a place called paradise. So uh, if we put this in context, the early verses, this is where you're going to be. We're going to meet at Abraham's bosom. But that's only the beginning. So that's where after Jesus... Dies, his soul is separated from body. They end up in Abraham's bosom. But that's not where the story ends. And first Peter, the author, shares that Jesus proclaims the message of the gospel. First uh, Peter 3, 18 to 20. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but was raised to life in the Spirit. That is the gospel. So he went and preached the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. Jesus preaches to the dead who were not in Hades. Now, I'm going to say this passage is really uh, unclear. It's also a bit controversial, but that doesn't mean that it's insignificant. And that's the point I want to make. So I'm not going to say that I have a perfect idea of what it means. Some believe that Jesus is preaching the gospel to a specific group of people that had not heard. Others say that um, he's not preaching the gospel to see them say, but he's proclaiming the gospel as a point of victory to those who were trapped in prison. But regardless of what he is doing here, the end, at the end of the day, the point is the same, that everyone, living and dead, will hear of the victory of Jesus over death. And then in Ephesians chapter four, the Bible shares. um, This is what the scriptures say. When he ascended to the heights, so that means Jesus ascending right to heaven is the implication. He led a crowd of captives and he gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended that clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so he might fill the entire universe with himself. Jesus led a crowd of captives to ascend to the heights, right? That we can often imagine is what we would call heaven. So the implication of this passage is that the promise That was given in both the Old Testament and the New is that Jesus, while he was dead, right, quote unquote, broke the power of death, secured salvation for those redeemed before he came, and then led them from Hades, from Abraham's bosom, to their new spiritual home in heaven. That is what Jesus did over those three days. That includes the thief on the cross. That includes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the prophets, and all those who look forward to the hope of Jesus. Jesus took them from their place in Hades and brought them to heaven to be with God. And you know what's the cool part about this? This was what those saints before Jesus hoped for. In Psalm 49, 15 The psalmist says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And then in the book of Hebrews, the author shares this hope in Hebrews chapter 11. Women received their loved ones again back from death, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection, after the resurrection of Jesus. And then in verses 39 to 40, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so they would not reach perfection without us. The promise of God to the saints of old was experienced through Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the blessing that we experience today because of our hope in Christ, and what happens to us after we die is going to be the same thing that happened to those saints who, believed, who were, uh, believed in the hope of Christ before he ever came. So if you want to think about it this way, all those who came before Jesus were grandfathered into the new covenant with us. I know our time is drawing to a close. Man, that time just flew. So uh, I'm really terrified a little bit About the questions I'm going to get. Fortunately, we're not going to have a lot of time to tackle them, so I can always hide behind time. Um, But as you send them in now to gmail.com, I'm going to close with this. The idea, he descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. We spent a lot of time this morning talking about Jesus's descent into hell and what happened in those three days between his death, burial, and then the resurrection. So we don't talk about, we didn't talk a lot about what happened when Jesus rose again. The specifics of what happened in those three days between his death, burial, and resurrection might be somewhat mysterious. It might be somewhat unclear. And the things I share with you, I'm not going to bank my life upon. But I will say this. The resurrection, yeah. The resurrection happened, right? The resurrection is clear. The resurrection is the Easter story, Jesus rising from the dead, and the salvation story is not complete simply focusing on his death and what might have happened, the timeline of what might have happened in between his death and resurrection, but it is not. The salvation story includes both his death, burial, and his rising from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus, like his death and his burial, is not only a, is not just a theological reality, it's a historical one. It Happened in time, anchored in reality, grounded by the witness of over 500 people who saw him alive after he was killed. That's what Paul testifies to in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, For I delivered to you as a first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Yes, Jesus died. And during that time when Jesus was dead, he tore apart the gates of Hades and he freed the redeemed from their shadowy place in Hades where they were unable to praise the Lord. He has conquered death. He has conquered all the powers of death with the resurrection being the triumphant confirmation of that reality. And when he did so, Jesus transformed the way the world views death. Before Jesus, and actually even today, for many of those who live apart from Jesus, death is something to be afraid of. Death is something to be feared. Death is something that represents a place of defeat. But not for the Christian. For the Christian, oh death. Where is thy sting? For the Christian, death is no longer the ultimate power in this world. I love how Charles Spurgeon shared uh, about death, and this is what he said. And then we'll close and hit Q&A. There is an essential difference between the decease of the godly and the death of the ungodly. Death comes to the ungodly man as a penal infliction, as a penalty, as punishment but to the righteous as a summons to his father's presence. To the sinner, it is an execution. To the saint, an undressing from his sins and infirmities. Death to the wicked is the king of terrors. Death to the saint is the end of terrors, the commencement of glories. Isn't that cool? Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for this time, this opportunity to be able to dig through some of the different challenging ideas in the scriptures that we might never be able to definitively definitively know about until that day when we get to sit in your lap and ask you all these crazy questions and have you laugh and say, ha, ha, ha great question, son, and then explain it all to us, Lord. And we're just so excited at the same time to know that regardless of how the process might have happened, the ramifications, the result has been utterly transformative, Lord. You died, you were buried, you conquered death, and you've risen from the dead. And it's because of that hope that we have this eternal life with you, that we have this restored relationship with you, and we no longer need to fear death. You, O oh Christ, have given us life, and we're grateful. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this morning. We're excited about baptisms and pray that your Holy Spirit will bear witness in that time as you bore witness at the baptism of Christ, your son. And uh, we give this all to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So,